guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or click the contribute link on the show's website, wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up, I promise. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, and you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. Thanks to Guy, Barry, Jack, and Jay for their recent contributions. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout-out to the History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens. I've been binge-listening to this one, especially given the topic of today's show. In Gary's own words, it's a podcast about all the history in all the books in all of the Bibles. He's a funny, knowledgeable, and most importantly, organized host that's tackling a massive topic. I've just completed his coverage on Exodus, and even at this early point in the show, I've already learned so much from him. All right. Uh, With that said, let's get on to today's episode. This is the first episode in a series on biblical etymology. Now, I didn't call it a mini-series as per usual, because if all goes to plan, it won't be a mini-series. It will be a mega-series. If that sounds exciting to you right off the bat, then great. You're in for a few months of steady and stimulating content. But if it doesn't sound exciting because you think that this show is going to turn into a religious sermon, or conversely, an anti-religious soapbox for me, uh, neither of these is the case. I'll be sticking strictly to linguistics and history, and whatever statements, conclusions, or hypotheses I make will be a product of these two perspectives and these two perspectives only. In doing so, I hope to offer a unique perspective on the evolution of Judaism and Christianity. It's a topic that I've had in mind since I started this podcast over a year and a half ago, and I'm really excited to be tackling it now. Biblical etymology is a subcategory of etymology unto itself. Volumes upon volumes have been written about the Greek and Hebrew lexicons contained within the Bible, most famously the exhaustive concordance of the Bible by James Strong. On one hand, this is simply because the Bible is an enormous literary text, and even more enormous than the text itself is the influence that it's had on the entire world. I mean, it's basically the most influential piece of literature ever written. But unlike other influential literature from the ancient world, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, for example, the Bible still directly impacts our everyday lives in real and tangible ways, even if you happen to be the most fervent atheist who refuses to ever read a single page of it. Christianity and its history are so deeply woven into the very fabric of the Western world, plain and simple. As the kind of person who seeks out educational podcasts in their spare time, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I don't need to explain that to you. 
If you're a biblical scholar, whether professional or amateur, then etymology is an invaluable tool when interpreting Greek and Hebrew. These are the languages in which the New and Old Testaments were written, respectively. There are many schools and methods of biblical interpretation, each with their own theological ideas and agendas, but I'm not going to get into the individual approaches endorsed by these schools because they don't really impact my own method of linguistic investigation on historical principles. But I will say this. In many ways, interpreting the Bible is no different from interpreting any other work of ancient literature. Scholars perform close readings of passages and analyze the usage of language and literary devices in order to deduce meaning. They compare similarities and differences between the text and other contemporaneous works of literature. They even supplement their reading with secondary sources from other fields of study like anthropology and archaeology in order to better understand the physical and cultural world in which the text was written. But what makes the labor of interpreting and translating the Bible very different from that of interpreting and translating other ancient texts is that approximately 2.2 billion people all over the world still regard the Bible as a divinely inspired text. To them, God is not a mythological figure like Achilles or Odysseus. God is still very much around us. Next time you're in New York City, take a walk from the Port Authority bus terminal to the NQR trains via the underground tunnel, and you'll see what I mean. It is the premier watering hole for screaming evangelists who are eager to tell you why you need the Bible in your life now. Anyway, the vast majority of people who read the Bible today, including those Port Authority evangelists, Read it in translation. At face value, this is a pretty mundane and obvious fact, but let's consider its implications, particularly through the lens of the English language. The mortal scribes who first recorded the books of the Bible didn't speak English. Old English, as a matter of fact, wouldn't emerge as a distinct language until 500 CE. That's about a thousand years later than the earliest proposed dates for the composition of the Old Testament. At the time the Old Testament was being written, the Proto-Germanic language, that is, the ancestral mother tongue that produced modern English, German, Dutch, Norse, and others, still existed as a unified language. The point I'm trying to make is that the authors of the Bible could not have foreseen an English-speaking audience. In fact, they couldn't have foreseen most of the modern languages in which the Bible is read today. So, some of you might be saying, well, yeah, of course not. But what's the big deal? Why does it matter what language you read the Bible in? The Bible's the Bible. The Word of God is the Word of God, no matter what language you translate it into. Well, it's not. The problem is that it's simply impossible to translate an entire work of literature word for word from one language into another. Normally, this kind of word-for-word -word linguistic precision doesn't matter when translating texts from one language into another. As long as some semblance of the original text remains intact, translators can take translators' liberties. 
However, when interpreting a holy text, such as the Bible, a wrong linguistic interpretation could result in the difference between eternal damnation or salvation, theoretically. That's an extreme example, but I hope you take my point. If you're translating very basic words in isolation, linguistic precision isn't a problem, generally speaking. For example, the Spanish word for I is yo, and the Hindi word for cow is gaya. End of story. But many words, if not most words, are more complicated than this. They actually contain a whole spectrum of meanings, and these meanings are determined by their usage and context. This linguistic feature is called polysemy, and I covered it in great detail way back in episode 4 of this podcast. Allow me to digress from the Bible for a moment. We can observe polysemy in the English word pick. It's just the word that came to my mind as I'm writing this script. For starters, it's both a noun, as in toothpick or ice pick, and a verb. This distinction is stark enough, but the verb to pick means a bunch of different things depending on how it's used. You can pick at a scab, which is like scratching, or you can pick a winner, which is more like selecting. You can also pick your nose, which is something in between the two. You can also use pick in the phrasal verb to pick up. So the point is, when translating pick from English into another language, the translated word may vary depending on the usage of pick in its original context. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at an example of how polysemy occurs in the Bible and how it can be problematic for translations. I'm going to focus on an extremely petty example in order to provide a foil for the magnitude of some of the more profound examples we'll be looking at later on in this series. The Greek verb proskuneo occurs 60 times in the New Testament. Its main meaning is to praise God, but it can also just mean to prostrate or to bow. When proskuneo was translated into Latin, it was translated as adoro. As it turns out, adoro, like proscuneo, also has a range of meanings that includes to praise, to worship, to prostrate, and to bow. So when scribes translated the New Testament into Latin, they didn't have to indicate the sense of the word being used because its meaning would naturally be dictated by context clues. However, English doesn't really have a single word that means to worship, to prostrate, and to bow all in one. Sure, prostrating is a form of religious praise or worship, but in order to convey the idea of prostration, we would have to be more specific. Bowing, on the other hand, can simply be a formal gesture to show respect. When the King James Bible was translated into English in 1611, Proscuneo was translated across the board as worship in all three of its contexts, when used to mean praise or worship, prostration, and bowing. Unlike the Latin word adoro and the Greek word proscuneo, the English word worship doesn't have and never had this range of meanings built into it. 
In the King James Version of Romans 12.26, a servant falls to his knees and worships a creditor to whom he owes a financial debt. The line doesn't make a whole lot of sense out of context, or even in context really, but I'll read it anyway. Quote, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped his creditor, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. End quote. That's not Lord as in God Almighty, by the way, but Lord as in one's authoritative superior. More on the relationship between these two meanings in an episode to come. In this verse, it's likely that the intended meaning of the Greek word proskuneo was not to worship, but more like to bow or to prostrate. Later English versions of the Bible seem to have caught on to this strange turn of phrase and consequently translated the verse differently. Here's the same verse from the New American Bible. Quote, So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before his lender, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. End quote. And in the International Standard Version, it's, quote, Then the servant fell down and bowed low before his lender, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. End quote. I don't know about you, but both of those make a little more sense to me. So, is the King James Version of the Bible wrong? Well, I don't know if it's wrong per se, but it is objectively, semantically ambiguous, and by comparing it to the original text, we can see why. Actually, quite a bit of the English used in the King James Bible is semantically ambiguous to modern readers, not only because of clumsy translations like this, but also because it was translated way back in 1611, and words within a single language change meaning over time. That's one of the main premises of this show. To put that date, 1611, into perspective, it was, give or take, just one century after the emergence of modern English from its historical predecessor, Middle English. In 1611, William Shakespeare was still alive and breathing. You know when kids read Shakespeare for the first time and they think it's written in Old English because the language sounds so different and a lot of the words don't mean what they look like they mean? Well, the same is true of the King James Bible. It's a historical work of translated literature at this point. Yet there are people, my own mother among them, who still regard this work of Elizabethan translation as the authoritative version of God's word. Even though the King James Bible sounds old, it's not as old as the stories of God and Jesus as told by the Bible itself, and its age certainly doesn't make it any more accurate as a literary text. In order to avoid another digression, I'd like to refer you to episode 5 of this podcast, in which I discuss the history of the word meat. Basically, meat used to be the word for all sorts of food, both edible and spiritual, apparently, and that's how it's used in the King James Bible. In Genesis 1.29, God says, quote, Behold, I have given you every herb. To you it shall be for meat. End quote. And in John 4.34, Jesus says, quote, My meat 
is to do the will of him that sent me. End quote. It sounds bizarre, but I'm not making this stuff up. Do a Google search of it. It's not that God and Jesus needed better dictionaries, but that the translators of the King James Bible lived in a different linguistic era of English than we do today. Okay, so far, our discussion has been heavy on the King James Version of the Bible, which isn't exactly a fair vantage point from which to present the topic of biblical translations or etymology overall. However, I think it is a good vantage point to very blatantly demonstrate some of the inevitable challenges created by reading literature in translation, and perhaps more generally, reading old literature, period. Since that historic translation in 1611, hundreds of other English translations of the Bible have been undertaken. The field of biblical scholarship has grown immensely since then, and thanks to modern archaeology, today we understand the ancient world described by the Bible better than ever before. Theoretically, then, if you read a modern translation of the Bible that's accompanied by the most up-to-date commentary— it's possible to come closer to understanding the Word of God in translation than it was in the past, right? Sure, but if we want to know more about those words that God apparently used, then we still need to dig deeper. Let's return to that Greek verb proskuneo that we looked at earlier. It comes from two Greek roots, pros, meaning towards, and kuneo, meaning kiss. Linguists seem to think that at one point it literally meant to kiss someone's hand, but after a long history of usage, its meaning expanded to mean worship in the more general sense. So how long was that history of usage? According to the written record, at least 500 years earlier than Christianity. The word proskuneo appears in the works of classical Greek writers such as Plato, Herodotus, and Sophocles, among many others. During this time, proskuneo had acquired the meaning it has in the New Testament, to praise, worship, bow, or prostrate. But the Greeks of this period were praising a different god, or rather, gods in the plural. During the time of classical Greece, Proskuneo was affiliated with the pantheon of pagan Greek gods and goddesses. Even though the pagan Greeks and early Christians worshipped different gods, the superimposition of proskuneo onto Christianity from an etymological point of view was probably not inaccurate, and here's why. The pagan Greeks had a custom of religious prostration whereby they put their heads to the ground and kissed the floor, and the Jews of the Bible seemed to have done something similar. So, although the religious context was different, the connotations of proskuneo would have been similar to both eras of Greeks. But, both of those eras were a long time ago. Nowadays, the idea of worship isn't semantically tied to a visceral bodily action the way proskuneo is. In the most liberal interpretations of the Bible, you can worship God however you want. Sure, you can get down on your knees with your head to the ground and kiss the floor, 
But you can also sit perfectly still in a pew every Sunday morning and listen to parents shush their kids while a pastor solemnly talks at you. That was the form of worship that I was familiar with as a child, and I'm sure the same is true for many of you. If we contrast this modern idea of worship with the kind of worship connoted by proskuneo in the original text of the Bible, they stem from very different notions, even if they both aim toward the same end goal. Hopefully I've maintained a thread of cohesion throughout this discussion. Basically, it's my long-winded way of saying that many words in the original biblical texts, whether Greek or Hebrew, don't have precise English equivalents, and because of this imprecise nature of translation combined with the natural evolution of language over time, understanding the Bible on a precise linguistic basis can be pretty hard. In the grand scheme of things, this example that I've used with proscuneo is a fairly technical and mundane one. Hopefully not too mundane. You're still here, right? Good. Now, Imagine what we can uncover about the Bible if we apply this method of linguistic investigation to individual words or entire passages of theological significance. Over the course of this series, I intend to unpack the linguistic history of words like heaven, hell, church, angel, Lord, God, Jesus, and who knows what else. By examining where these words came from and how they developed into what we know today, I hope that we'll also learn something about the development and evolution of the Jewish and Christian religions at large. But before we do that, I'd like to send you off with a brief look at the etymology of Bible itself. Compared to the complexity of what we've been discussing, it's a pretty lighthearted story. Bible ultimately comes from the Greek word biblion, which meant book. The plural of biblion was biblia, and since the Bible is not a single book, but a collection of various books, it came to be known collectively as ta biblia to hagra, or the holy books. Over time, this was shortened to ta biblia, and eventually, Biblia lost its status as a plural noun and morphed into a singular noun. From Greek, ta biblia passed into Latin, then French, and then English. It's first attested in English during the early 14th century and was probably pronounced as Bible prior to the Great Vowel Shift. Now, the history buffs out there may notice something a little odd about the century during which Bible first entered English. The Anglo-Saxon culture of England began to be Christianized during the 7th century, which is over 400 years before the Norman-French invasion of England. Did it take that long for the Christian Anglo-Saxons to discover the Bible via French conquerors? Well, of course not. The old English-speaking Anglo-Saxons had the Bible, but they called it by a different name. Bibliothek. It's a loan word from Greek that literally means library, and apparently it's a term that St. Jerome often used to refer to the Bible itself. By the 9th century, 
bibliothèque was replaced by the shorter form biblia, but after the French influence on English during the Middle English period, this pronunciation was phased out in favor of the more French-sounding bible. Now, when I said that biblion meant book, it didn't mean book in the sense that you and I are familiar with. Ancient Greece didn't have books with two covers and bound pages. It had scrolls made of papyrus. The Greek word for papyrus was biblos, and biblion is ultimately a diminutive form of this word. Biblion could refer to the actual text written on a sheet of papyrus, or the papyrus itself. But the etymology doesn't stop there. Byblos actually comes from the name of an ancient Phoenician port city that regularly exported Egyptian papyrus plants to the Greeks. Although the Greeks called this city Byblos, the Phoenicians themselves called it Jubail, which literally meant frontier town. Many linguists seem to think that the Greek name is a direct borrowing and corruption of the Phoenician word Jubail. I'm not sure how you go from Jubail to Byblos, but these linguists are smarter than I am, so I'll take it at face value. If this is true, then Bible is ultimately a Semitic word, as the Phoenician language belonged to the Semitic language family. By extension, it also means that the Bible is simply named after a plant, which was named after a market town. All right, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you loved it. Again, if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. You can follow me on Twitter at at wordsforgranted and on Facebook as wordsforgranted. You can email me directly with comments, criticisms, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. And last but not least, don't forget to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice. Those reviews boost the visibility of the show according to Blackmagic algorithms, and it's my mission to get this podcast into the hands of as many listeners as possible. Okay, see you next time. Have a great day.